If you spend much time on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, what you notice is that the posts that are there will tend to fall into three rather large emotional categories. There are the anger posts. This is what I'm against. Uh, there are the applause posts. This is what I'm for. And then there are the general silliness posts. That's where cat videos go. <laughs> but if you look at the, at the applause post. What you see is that people are making much of something there that is bringing them joy and inviting us to join them in that, in that joy. And there's an infinite variety of things. Uh, grandchildren's birthdays or the ribs they made in their, in their big green egg or uh, the team logo, the team they cheer for. There's announcements of engagement. There's video of gender reveal parties. There's a book or movie that was enjoyable. There's something someone handcrafted, someone, someone made. If you look at those posts, they reveal a lot about the person who posts. The applause points to who they are. They're a grandparent. They're a, they're a fan. They're a, uh, they're a fiance. They're a cook or a chef. And it tells you what they think is important enough to post for the whole world to see. So I see that a couple of observations I have about that. And the first one is this, is that what we make much of reveals who we are and what we're made out of. And the second one's connected to it. And that's that what we regularly applaud declares the spiritual worth, beauty, and importance of the thing we applaud. Now, we can call that applause uh, enthusiasm or interest or love. You could also call it praise. Or worship. Now, I know we generally use those words just to apply to what happens in a setting like this, kind of a religious setting, but, but the facts are that when joy is stirred in us, there is always an impulse to share that joy with others. British author and scholar C.S. Lewis once wrote this. He said, all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. The world rings with praise, he said. Lovers praising each other, readers their favorite poet, Walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game. There's praise of weather and wines, dishes and actors, motors and horses, colleges and countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians or scholars. Just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. And he concludes with this, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. The delight is incomplete until it's expressed. Now, now we've all experienced that. We know what that's, what that's like, but it does raise some questions. I mean, if expressing delight in ordinary stuff is praise, what makes Christian gatherings like this unique? I mean, is this just another expression of individuality like all those Facebook posts? Uh, some people choose this, others don't. Some people like this, some don't. Is that the way this works? Why does this gathering matter? What makes it special? Well, remember, what we make much of reveals who we are and what we're made out of. And we're gathered here today as, as God's family, as King Jesus' people. And our heavenly Father and our King commands us to worship Him. So you look and you find the first part of the Ten Commandments. So God says, I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. He says later, you shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. 
The psalm says, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and he is to be feared above all gods. Jesus said, true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. And the one verse Jesus said, son of the whole Bible, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. So this is the way God says, I want you to relate to me. I'm, to, I'm calling you to worship me as a priority of life. But does any of that raise questions for you? Why does God insist on worship? Why is the Father seeking more worshipers than the ones he already has? And the one that I think raises even more questions, what in the world does an omniscient, omnipotent king of the universe have to be jealous over? He's a jealous God. It's not what he's jealous over, like an insecure middle school, middle, middle school boyfriend. It's what he's jealous for. He is jealous for his worship, the glory of his name in the hearts of his people. Now remember, what we regularly applaud declares the superior worth, beauty, and importance of the thing we applaud. So here's what our king knows. And here's what we forget as we go through the world week by week. And here's what this every seven-day gathering reminds us of. The most important reality in the universe is God and his glory. Nothing else even comes close. Now, when we're talking about glory, what is that? It is the radiance of God's holy perfections and his beauty. It is an outshining. Like, have you ever seen a sunrise? Just before the sun comes over the horizon, there are those beams that come out. Not the sun itself, just the, the beams that are coming. That's the glory of the sun. So the glory of God are the beams, the outshinings of his perfections and beauty, not the fullness of God himself. Because we, if we saw that full force, we would disintegrate into dust. That's exactly what happened with Moses. Moses asked God, God, show me your glory. And God said, you're not built for that. You can't handle that. But here's what I will do. He said, I, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim before you my name. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord. It's the word Yahweh, his name I am. I am a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Can you imagine anyone or anything better? The one who is the infinite, perfect creator of all things is infinite in his goodness, in his mercy, his graciousness. He is patient with us, slow to anger. He is abounding in love. He is overflowing with generosity toward us. He forgives us our sins and our transgressions and the ways that we break his laws. And he's just, he always does the right thing. Our God is the best of all that is possible and the most necessary thing of all for any of us. He demands that we recognize him and recognize his worship because he loves us perfectly and he longs for us to know and to have what is best. And what is best is him. He is the best thing of all. So 
this morning as we kind of draw this series to a close we've been looking at, seeing what God provides, we want to focus in on that aspect of this. We've been in one little passage of the Bible, Isaiah 43. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there to Isaiah 43 or turn there on your device and look at this. The, the prophet Isaiah is speaking to a people that are in a tough spot. They don't really know what's going on. They're not sure where their future's headed. And, but he speaks a word of comfort to them. Isaiah 43, beginning at verse 16. Would you stand in honor of the reading of God's word? Because I want you to hear the whole passage where we've been for these weeks together. Beginning in verse 16. Thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches. For I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. You may be seated. So in these weeks, what we've seen is that God provides a way where there is no way. He provides strength for our weakness. He provides a plan when we're confused. He provides life where all we have is existence. And this morning in verse 21, he concludes all that, kind of draws all that down to remind us that he provides for his praise. What does he provide? Well, first notice this, that God provides for his praise by creating us for his glory. He says there in verse 21, those whom I formed for myself. Now, he's already said that a couple of times in Isaiah 43. You go back to verse 1, it says, Now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, who formed you, O Israel. And then in verse 7, Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. The word formed there is, is kind of think about a potter at the wheel. With the clay under his hands, moving that wheel about and shaping the clay. Now that potter can make anything he wants to out of that clay. He can make a sturdy mug or he can make an exquisite vase for flowers. It makes no difference. The creator always has the right to determine what his creation is going to be. Here's what we know about you, about every other person. God fearfully and wonderfully made you. He handcrafted you. You are not a random collision of biological goo. His fingerprints are on you. And because he made you, what that means is that you have dignity and value and you have purpose for your living. That's really clear in the, back at the very beginning when the Bible says in Genesis 1 verse 27 that God created humanity in his own image in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. So every single human being, male and female, no matter where you are, where you're from, created in God's image, which means that every human being is designed to accurately display God as he is to the world. Now, now we talk a lot about how uh, one person resembles another. And we talk about, for instance, how children resemble their parents. And, so, and we'll say, oh, she has your eyes, or, or he has his father's hair, or, 
Look, look across the, the mouth or across the eyes. You can't deny those kids are from that family. We see the physical resemblance. But God is, is, an, is a spirit. God is invisible. So how do we image him? How do we show what he is like? We do that as we order our lives by his word, his ways, his heartbeat, his priorities, his values. So those become our words, our character, our actions, our priorities, our values, so that when others encounter us, they see and are reminded and reverence God as he is. They, they see and come to, to know him. So the Bible talks about creation. It says, it says the heavens are telling the glory of God. Well, we're his creation and we're designed to tell his glory as well. So a successful, flourishing human life is not about accomplishments. It's not about collecting a series of experiences. It's not about our name or our legacy or what we do. All of those kinds of anything we do. A successful, flourishing human life is to live every moment, every second without fail like an arrow pointing to heaven, displaying the glory, the outshining, the beauty, the importance of God. To be human means that we are to be worshipers. Now, but but nobody does that. Nobody ever has, without fail, moment by moment, lived to point to God's glory like that. Why? Because the Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everybody has sinned, made the choice to to, uh, rebel against God's rule, to break his laws, to reject his ways, to, to refuse to trust him. And at any point where we sin, our lives then no longer match God's glory. Our lives no longer match what we were created to be, who we were created to be. So sin is at its root basically a worship issue. Sin is exactly how it is spelled. I is in the middle. If I go through my life, and I am center stage of my life, what that means is God is not. If I live in such a way that the spotlight is always on me and that it's spotlighting my beauty and my worth and my importance, then it's not spotlighting those things about God in any way. Lack of worship makes us soul dead because it separates us from the very source and intent of our life, and it puts us in eternal peril of a punishment from the one who created us. Now, what are we going to do about that? If what we were created to be has been defaced in some way and no longer matches up, what can God do? Secondly, would you notice that God provides for his praise, his praise not only by creating us for his glory, but by saving us for his glory. If the creation was to be like God in his glory, and that's been messed up, what's required is a recreation, a new living in some way. So God sent his son Jesus 
to rescue us from our non-worshiping selves. Jesus perfectly lived the life we would not. He never sinned. He lived every single moment, every second, every impulse for his Father's glory. But he also sacrificially died the death we should have died. He took God's punishment, had God's death penalty on us. He took in our place. And then he triumphantly won the victory we could not over sin and over death, over all the punishment that is there. And here's what he promises. He promises that if anyone would repent, and repent means to turn away from self-worshipping, turn away from self in the spotlight, turn away from dependence and self-confidence, and turn away from that and trust Jesus and what he's done in his life, death, and resurrection to be our only hope for life and eternity. If we would turn and trust him, what would happen? He said, you'll be forgiven of your sin, your non-worshiping. You'll be reconciled back to your creator, put back to a relationship with the one where that relationship was broken and adopted as his very own family. Now, if he does that, who then is the source of our saving? Look what Titus says. God saved us, not because of works done by us, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of renewal and regeneration of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Now, notice what he says. It was, I don't save me. It's not by any kind of work that I've done. So on my best day, on a collection of my best days where I've really got my act together. On your best day, we can't get enough good to make up for messing up by, by not worshiping and putting our God first. On my best day, so I can't save myself. It's not about my religious activities, by praying a prayer or being baptized, joining a church, being active. Not by my morality, not by my kindness, not by helping a little old lady across the street or always buying world's finest chocolate from the kid at the door or giving to the United Way or serving in some way. We don't, we can't save ourselves. It's done by God. And Titus says, it's by God the Father, God the Son, God, the Holy Spirit, God is the one. So then who gets the praise for the saving? He's the one who does it. God does. Later on, Paul, in thinking about his salvation, has this one glorious run-on sentence in, in Ephesians chapter 1 where he talks about God saving. And this one run-on sentence is punctuated by these three refrains. He says, we're saved by the Father's plan of mercy to the praise of his glorious grace. He says, we're saved by God's, by the Son's provision of redemption through his blood shed on the cross to the praise of his glory. And we're saved by the Spirit's promise to make us alive and secure us alive forever to the praise of his glory. This is what our God has done in saving us, in rescuing us. So I need to ask this morning, have you received what God in all of his glory has provided for you that you might know him and know his life. Have you turned from self-confidence, I can make it myself for my life and my eternity, and put that aside and turn to what Christ has provided? It's your only hope. It's your only way. And he says, 
anyone who will come to me, I will rescue you. And if you'll do that, the moment you do, you join many, many, many of us who have experienced that. And the only response to his saving is praise of him. That's what happens when we gather here on the Lord's Day. We gather to praise him. How do we do that? We do that when we sing and when we shout, when we speak, when we think his thoughts, when we weep. We can raise our hands and we can clap. We can dance. The Bible says so. I know we're Baptists, but it says we can dance, right? We can bow our knees. We can go before him. We can get quiet inside ourselves and delight ourselves because, brothers and sisters, only Jesus saves. Jesus saves. He rescues us with his life. So to be saved is to be a worshiper. Now, everything up to now has been kind of uh, internal on the inside. Creates us and saves us. But there's more to life, isn't there? There's more of our experience of life. And what God intends to do once he has saved us is to make us like Jesus. So would you also know that God provides for his praise by shaping us for his glory? Once we enter a relationship with him, it's not like God is kind of like a wind-up toy. God winds us up and sets us waddling off into the world. And God says, see you when you're back. No. God remains intentionally engaged with our life in all of its aspect. He controls and orders everything that touches our lives for our good and for his glory. We use that phrase a lot, that God works for our good and for his glory. What that means is that everything that touches our lives, that he allows, that he engages, that he provides, exists to make much of him, to help worship be even greater toward him. 23rd Psalm says this in verse 3. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He leads me for his name's sake. He leads me to make much of his name. He leads me so that his name is seen more. So every moment of our life is meant to make much of our God. Now, sometimes the path where he leads and what he allows is sunny and brings us great joy. So we have things happen. There's an unexpected financial blessing. There's a good report from the doctor. There's a a special vacation with family. There's, there's a meal with good friends. Uh, there's a, a sense of guidance that you have or a sense of strengthening for a challenge. There's the, there's the first cool fall night. <laughs> there's key lime pie, just saying. <laughs> there are things that we look at, and right now you can think of one just from this week where you look back and you say, thank you, Lord. Praise the Lord for that. That's, that's a worship moment for you. But we know that life is not all daffodils and giggles and lollipops. Even what Isaiah was writing here to Israel, they were a nation who was crumbling from the inside spiritually. Their leadership was suspect in its character. They were threatened by enemies. They were under the judgment of God and probably facing exile where everything would fall apart that they had ever known. Even in this, in this chapter back in Isaiah 43, verse 3, even though there's a promise tucked in it, here's what, what the Lord says to Isaiah. For 
When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you'll not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. Now, the promise is fantastic, but, he, but he's saying you're still going to go through a flood. You're still going to go through a fire. Sometimes the path where God leads is dark and full of shadows. It's hard and it's painful. The cancer returns. The job that gets cut was yours. The child you love so dearly rebels or just struggles in some way. Your family implodes. The prince or princess you thought would come never did. The one you love dies. The failure comes. COVID happens. Turns everything upside down. And it feels like it's going on forever and ever. And you wonder, where is God? And how long is this going to go? And I know right now as well, as surely as the blessing came to your mind, right now it's coming to mind something, some part of some chapter of your story that you wish you'd never had to live. We find ourselves alive in a land of mourning and heartache and confusion, and nothing in your heart in that moment feels like praise. You ever been there? <laughs> Are you there this morning? What do you do then? You, you remember the story of Job? Job loved God. He led his family well. He, he lived in his community with integrity. And then in his mysterious ways, God allowed Satan to attack. And in a, a very short amount of time, Job lost his family, his possessions, his income, his health, and his reputation. Everything went away. Here's what Job's response was. Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The place of your deepest wounds and your most bitter tears may also be one of your greatest opportunities to worship your king. Now, it's hard. And we sang it this morning, right? I choose to praise, to glorify. There are some days that's really, really hard. Here's what we want to remember. Our circumstances don't change who our king is. Even in the dark, he's still worthy. Even in the shadows, his love is still steadfast. Even in the dark, his promises are still trustworthy. Even in the confusion, he is still good, still chasing us with goodness and mercy all the days of our lives. So that even like Job, he says, even if this kills me that God has brought, I will still praise him. I'll still delight in him. That grows our hearts. Worship there deepens and strengthens faith because maturing 
Christians are increasingly worshipers across all the seasons of life. Now, now we don't live in a bubble, do we? It's not just me and you and me and God, and that's not where it is. We, we live in a world of people and a world that is firmly committed to worship everything and anything other than God. You know, I live in the midst of an entire nation of people who are deceived, many bound by their sin, blinded by the enemy, and they're at risk spiritually. So I also want you to see that God provides for his praise by sending us for his glory. We're sent into that mess, into that difficulty as ambassadors we're representing our king and his intent and his mission to have more worshipers to give witness to that. John Piper once said this. He said, missions exists because worship doesn't. We're sent as disciples to be and make more disciples. Another way to say that is that we are sent to lead non-worshippers to become and join us in being worshipers. And that's not just on strange places around the globe, although it's certainly there, but it's also right here in our community, in our neighborhood, on our streets. You've heard us talk about the disciple's life, these five core rhythms of living life as a disciple, that we gather for worship because we're worshipers. We connect with a group because we're family. We serve the church and the kingdom because we're servants. We equip ourselves for growth because we're lifelong learners. And we make more disciples because we're missionaries sent into the world. Now, you got to know that those five things are not like a cafeteria thing. They're all crucial for every disciple. They all go together. They're all entwined one after the other. But there's a reason why worship is at the center, because worship is the fuel for all of those things. That's why it's so crucial that we gather here every Lord's Day and remind ourselves again who we are and who He is and, and to the glory of His name. But let's remind ourselves also. That worship center on the outside of this building is a great way to get directions in our facility. But the reality is the center of our worship is not in a place or a building. The center of the worship of God is in you, Christian, because you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. He lives inside of you. And so wherever you are is a place to worship. So 1 Corinthians 10, 31 says, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Make much of God where you live, in your home, with your neighbors, where you, where you work, in your vocation, and those that surround you there, where you, where you learn, at school, wherever that might be, at play, with your hobbies or your athletics, in those places, in those circumstances, in those relationships. Find a way to point out his worth, his beauty, his importance. You'll worship even there. You say, how can I do that? I don't play a guitar. <laughs> I can't preach. How can I worship that? Remember, what we make much of reveals who we are and what we're made out of. And Peter, in his book, says this. He said, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. This is who you are. Why? That you may declare the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We're called to live in such a way that we proclaim it, that we declare it, that we make it known to others 
So the idea of being on mission and sharing our faith is not just about sharing a gospel plan or a plan of salvation. Yes, do that. We want you to be equipped and engaged in every opportunity. But it's not just that. It is that you have a story to tell. Because you've experienced him. You've come out of darkness into light, out of death into life. He's given you who he is. And so out of that, you get to tell others, declare the excellencies above everything else, that you have a God who creates and saves and guides and provides and comforts and secures and pursues. And your joy is in him because you can trust him because he's strong and just and faithful and loving. And we're declaring because we want to invite others other people to join us because here's what we know we want them to know Jesus is better he's better than anything else the world offers than any other story the world wants to tell so you see to be on mission means that you live as a worshiper as a worshiper now listen we're thrilled that so many of you are coming back and that you're here and we pray that even more will gather and that all the sites and all the venues will be packed. We'll have to think of other ways to have more people. We want you to come here. The gathering is crucial. It's crucial to our life as a church. It's crucial to your life as a disciple. It's not the final goal. Our king is at work in and around us to worship him. He says, I formed you that you might declare my praise. Just to remind you, because you're human, because you're breathing and have a heartbeat, you're meant to be a worshiper. If you're saved, you're a worshiper. If you're maturing as a Christian, it means you're a worshiper. And if you're on mission, you're a worshiper. What's that mean? making much of him because what we regularly applaud declares the superior worth, beauty, or importance of the thing we applaud. So can I just ask you this question? Do the people who encounter you as you go through your life know that you are a worshiper of the great king? Not that you, just, that you go to church and what your Sunday morning schedule is. That's great. But beyond that, have they heard it from you? Have they seen it in you? That he is your highest joy and your greatest strength and your most, most overwhelming reality is who he is. Brothers and sisters, let's live to make much of him starting now. Because here's the thing. All of history in all the years in all that have come to now, all the years ahead of us, all the people in all the nations in all the world and all the things, it's all headed toward a conclusion. There's coming a day where it says when the glory of God will cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. Coming a day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If everything is headed that direction, might be a pretty good idea for us to go ahead and get in on it now and start now living every day to make much of our great king because he alone is worthy. Yes, you bow your heads and close your eyes. Lord, we pray in these moments.
that you have made it clear to our souls where we are as worshipers. Lord, we pray for those that came here today not as worshipers, that in this moment they're turning from their self-confidence to Christ alone. And when they walk out, they'll walk out as worshipers, rescued, saved with your life. And Lord, for those of us who do know you, we pray that you would show us our life. And would you show us how consistently we are living our lives for your glory in our speech, in our words, in our action, in our character, in our relationships. Oh, Lord, would you make Living Hope a family full of worshipers who delight in your name, who live for your glory with every single breath. Help us live that for the spread of your fame. Thank you for it all in the name of Jesus. Amen.